0: That are tuning in online, I want to say welcome to you tonight. It's going to be a very, very uh, substantive session. We're going to talk a lot about historical things. What we want to do is we want to begin creating an environment for us to understand the gospels. And what I what I may do, just so that we can sort of tarry a little bit for those that are coming, I may may ask you some questions as well, just to get a sense of. Your, your knowledge of the Gospels and things like that. Um, if you don't mind, come to the mic and just give us a little sense of your knowledge of the Gospels. Um, first question, I would ask, there are four Gospel accounts. Do you want to just come to the mics and give us a sense of what your favorite Gospel account is and why that's yours? So we've got the Gospel according to Matthew. We've got the Gospel according to Mark, Luke, and of course, John. Anyone want to just come quickly? We're just going to break a little bit of the ice and tell us what your favorite gospel account is. And then kind of a backdrop as to why that's your your favorite. All right. Gary, you want to help me out tonight? Because once somebody moves, then everybody moves. All right. Let him just get that mic ready, Gary. We'll just use this one. David, why don't you just... Pass that one over to Gary and then he can start using that. If you're in the chat, you may just want to jot down what your favorite gospel account is and then why that's your your favorite gospel. Gary, what's your favorite gospel account? The gospel according to Luke. And why is that your favorite account? Okay. All right. And Sean, I was having some difficulty hearing hearing Gary because I don't think his mic is on. So we're just working on that, Gary. We'll get that sorted out in just a minute. I want to just really hear what you were fully saying. Um, Is he good to go now? Yes, go ahead. Why, Why is it your favorite account, Gary? More in order. Okay. He goes is A
1: of very much
0: Okay, I like that. So for you, it's more, it's a historical investigative account. Okay. And, and Gary said something interesting. Someone else want to tell us what your favorite gospel is? He says, Luke writes from the perspective of a doctor. And when we get to that gospel, you're, you're right, Gary. He, he was not one that was among the 12, but at the same time, he was able to report what he discovered. Someone else, what's your favorite gospel account and, and why?
1: Um, So, I don't know if it's on, but... um, Is
0: that microphone on? Give him one second. It's good to go now. Go ahead.
1: All right. So, my favorite um, gospel account is Matthew. Okay. Um, I love all the red words in it, how much Jesus speaks. And um, I just love all the parables and how they relate so much to right now. And I find that whenever... I'm going through something new, the Lord leads me to Matthew, and this is is what you're going through, this is why, and this is what you're learning. So I find that he wrote all of the challenges and the lessons that we would need to learn after we're saved and we're walking it out and we're learning how to love, we're learning how to forgive, we're learning how to work our talents. Um, You find a lot of that in Matthew, the practical. And I find that Matthew is very practical, just in his writing sense.
0: Okay. You like Matthew because he's the more practical of all the gospel writers. I like that. Okay. I'll go to Hida, then uh, Lloyd, I'll come to you. What's your favorite gospel account, Lee Hida? Why is that?
1: My favorite favorite gospel is Matthew as well. But I take it at a different level because I think Matthew like a segue from the Old Testament to okay. the New Testament because um, I used to think, I don't think that way anymore, that the Old Testament was different from the New Testament, mm-hmm. but it bridges the gap because you see it shows Jesus' genealogy in the first few chapters, it confirms his birth and how it should happen, it confirms what the prophets said in, mm-hmm. in Isaiah and all those other prophets.
0: But okay, so inside. you like it as a bridge. Yeah, we
1: do the bridge. That's, that's, the a, that's a good. Yeah.
0: Okay, how many of you know that though we open our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew and it says the New Testament, how many of you know that that's not really the New Testament? You, you know that, right? And the reason why it's not the New Testament is because when you read the Gospels, you're reading a transition. The Gospels are transitioning you from the old into the new. But remember, the covenant cannot go into effect until the one making the covenant dies. You follow that? So that's one of the reasons why Jesus obeys the literal Sabbath. He follows all the rules of the Mosaic Covenant because he's transitioning from the new to the old. When he dies on the cross, when he rises again, the covenant then comes into effect. The New Testament actually begins properly on the day of Pentecost. That's when we see the New Testament at work in the lives of of human beings. Lloyd, favorite gospel? Acts. Okay. Well, how did you get to the book of Acts as your favorite gospel? But, but remember, we're just going to go, you only get, you only get four. <laughs> Lloyd is over there taking five, everyone. Tell Lloyd you can't take five. You, gotta, you only got to give me, what you could say is, because if you love Acts, automatically, like Gary, you would love Luke's gospel. Make sense? Go ahead, tell, tell us more. You can tell us about Acts, though. Well, I love it because basically it's the fifth book of the New Right. And I mean that without the, book of Acts, the did Right. And this is where they said the Spirit was said that the apostles and mm-hmm. all the believers followed Jesus. Right. And so, the Holy the church, yeah. the church Right. Try the vision of yep. the, church, yep. and I love the church. Yes. Yep. Can I can I tell everyone something? What I think is interesting about what you're saying though is if you look at what Luke says in Acts chapter one, he says that the things that he's writing now are the things that Jesus began both to do and to teach. And the idea there is, here's an interesting idea. In the book of Acts, Jesus is not dead. He's alive through his disciples. So that's something that I want the body to think about. Because what the church is supposed to be doing is exactly what he began to do and teach. He, his life continues through the body. Very good. Thank you, Lloyd. Ephraim's coming on this side. Your favorite gospel, Ephraim? I got one online. Okay, online. This is from Matt. He says John. John. I like it. Why do you like John? Because of who wrote it Apostle Love by Jesus. And okay. I
1: also like John because he simplifies it. He writes it so simple and plain.
0: Right. Yes, even if you are so close to Jesus, but the yeah. way he writes it, it's like anybody else would write it. Write this down, everyone. Love makes everything simple. You got that? Because what what we should at least admit is that John is the simplest of all the Gospels. In fact, John is the most quoted of all the Gospels. So let's do it. For God so loved the, that he, I am the resurrection and the, he that believeth in me, though he were. You see, I am the light of the world. John is the one that the church quotes the most. And what, what Matt was saying online is, it's written by apparently... The disciple whom Jesus loved, who leaned on his breast. And I think there's some truth in that. Love makes or love simplifies life. Makes it so, so, so easy. Thank you. Anyone else before we go into tonight? Because we're going to really go down. And Barbara, you want to give us yours for the last one?
1: Mine is still John.
0: You like John?
1: Yes.
0: Okay. The reason
1: why is because John... Actually, explain to us who Jesus really was that He was God, right? In the beginning, He was the Word, yes, and the Word became flesh, yes, well, among us, so yes. He, he let us know that Jesus was the very God, yes, that spoke and all the things He,
0: he created the world and everything, yeah. And he Himself is the one that came, beautiful, as a human being, beautiful, dwell among us, beautiful. Thank you, Barbara. That is so wonderful. Thank you, everyone. Well, here's what we're going to do tonight. Um, can, I, can I get my, my, my subject? I pressed and Daniel 7, 1 came up. So if you can just give me my, my, my heading tonight. Uh, I pressed again, Daniel 1, 7 came up. <laughs> so I don't know if the Holy Spirit asked me to read Daniel, but I'm going to wrestle with God and ask him for my subject. Can you give me my subject? And uh, we're going to go. If you don't have the notes, by the way, you can simply, because these notes, I think they're critical. So I want you to maybe follow these notes, um, go online and grab them. What I want to show you is the the worlds that frame the gospel. So I'm going to show you that the gospels, they live in a particular world. And that world was being shaped for many years. In fact, in Galatians 4, the Bible teaches us that when the fullness of time had come that's when God sent forth his son there was worlds that were being shaped when you understand these worlds it will help you to understand the Gospels a whole lot better what I like to say is this theology lives in a context so there's a world in which theology lives if you understand that world you're then able to apply truth a lot more effectively sometimes when we read the Gospels because we don't fully understand the world in which Jesus is walking in, the application comes off a little skewed and we'll say things about him. That's not really consistent with his world and the people that were in his world. For instance, I'll give you an example. It's more in the book of Acts. There was a moment when the disciples were standing before the council and the the men in the council said of the disciples, these men are unlearned men. Remember that scripture? they're not they're not learned men and so what we can do is we can think that that means that they are not educated and so we can walk away and we can say well you know the gospel is not for people who are educated because look at the disciples but when I show you tonight they weren't saying that these men didn't have any education they were actually making a reference to how long they had actually sat at the feet of a rabbi in comparison to them so I'm going to show you the worlds we're going to do it in I don't know if I get through everything tonight I'm going to show you what I call the geopolitical world that shapes the gospel. I'll define it so it won't be intimidating. I'm also going to show you the religious world that shapes the gospel. And I'm also going to show you the, I would call it the biblical world, in terms of how God was orchestrating things to the point when Jesus came. Tonight, what we're going to look at is this geopolitical world. And what that simply means is we're going to look at how kingdoms Empires, politics shape the world in which Jesus was born. And I'm also going to show you how accurate a prophecy Daniel is. Perhaps one of the most accurate of the prophets in terms of charting history and telling us what was going to happen in history long before, before Jesus came. I'll help you to understand the role tonight that the Babylonians played in shaping Jesus' world. I'm going to show you the role that the Persians played shaping his world if we get there the role that the Greeks played in shaping his world and ultimately the Romans the world in which he was thrust into I will show you how they shaped his world and you will see how all these things work together to create this perfect world in fact it was a very complex world kind of like the world that we're living in today And if you can understand the complexities of Jesus' world, it will help you and I to navigate. Because we're also living in a very complex world. And we learn from him how to navigate a world of complexities, a world of ideas, religious positions, sects and groups. We're in a world similar to that today. It's going to show us how to do that. What I want to do is I want to chart this journey from Babylon all the way to Rome. To, to show you his world. If you want to study this in the Bible, we can start in the book of 2nd Kings chapter number 11. I could tell you the stories and I think I will that lead up to this so you'll understand what God was doing. We'll also learn tonight that God takes his time before he does anything. He, he's patient. He's, he really is long suffering. He's a God of process. And here's an interesting thing. He does not let the prayers of his people circumvent his process. So I want you to think about that. There were people praying and praying and God kept going with his process until he was ready. And so there are times when we have to understand that God may not be answering prayers, not because he hasn't heard you, but because he's not ready in the things that he's orchestrating and putting together. So I'm going to show you to do this. I want us to read Daniel chapter 2. I'm going to read a little portion you, I think you all know this then I'm going to go to Daniel chapter 8 I would encourage you to even get your Bibles out on your Smartphones or your physical Bibles to follow what I'm going to read and then I'm going to read a portion in Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 7 All right, this story here in Daniel chapter 2 beginning at verse 31 It's the story of that great image that Nebuchadnezzar sees Everyone, okay, not at me if you remember this story he sees in a, in a dream this great image, but he can 't interpret what the image means, and he calls for Daniel and Daniel comes and he interprets the image he tells him this is what this looks like this is what this is all about this this let 's read it now i 'll show you what I mean Daniel chapter two verse thirty one He says, this is Daniel talking to Nebuchadnezzar. He said, you saw, you beheld a great image. The brightness was excellent. It stood before you. The form was awesome, terrible, majestic. He says, here's what you need to understand. The head of fine gold, his breast, his arms of silver, his belly, his thighs. Here's what I want you to realize. The head is one kingdom. We're going to show you that in a minute. The breast and the arms, that's another kingdom. The belly... That's another kingdom, thighs of brass. And lastly, we're going to see that there's another kingdom, legs of iron, feet, part of iron and clay. Four kingdoms that Daniel's going to talk about that's going to rise. He says, here's what this means. You saw till a stone was cut out and that stone smote the image and stood upon its feet, broke, broke the iron, broke the clay, put them in pieces. Let me go back one more verse. Sorry. And then the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, the gold were broken pieces together. They became like the shaft, etc. And the stone became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. And the stone obviously is gonna be the kingdom of God. Here's the first thing that I want us to get tonight. The first kingdom that we're going to be introduced to in this journey of creating the world of Jesus is Babylon. But to understand Babylon, let's go back to 2nd Kings chapter 11. Israel, they're in the land of promise. They're going through and they're having their moments with God. They're, sometimes they're obeying God, sometimes they're not. They've gone through judges. They've got prophets and priests. Saul comes and he becomes king. He stays king for a while. He's disqualified. Up comes David. After David comes Solomon something critical is going to happen. When Solomon becomes king, historians call this the golden age of Israel. He expands the kingdom further than David. He brings peace, there's prosperity in the kingdom. His only challenge is that he has deficiencies. One of his greatest deficiencies is that he loves strange women. And he marries a lot of strange women, women who are non-Israelite women, Moabites, Ammonites, things like that. Not only does he marry them, he brings their gods into Israel. And secondarily, he builds altars to their gods, and he scatters these altars throughout the land, and that angers God. And this is perplexing because you're talking about the person who the Bible calls the wisest of all kings. So he angers God and God says to him, I'm going to split the kingdom because of your actions. And God says, I'm not going to do it in your lifetime because of how much I love David. And there's something powerful in there. Much of what God does in the Bible is because of his love for David. He loves David, even though David has flaws. He said, I'm going to split the kingdom from you, but I will not do it in your lifetime. When you die, it's going to happen. And so what God does is, he begins to raise up what the Bible calls adversaries. These are Satans or Satans and they begin to bother. And one of those adversaries is a gentleman named Jeroboam. Very significant name, Jeroboam. Jeroboam is actually one of the generals in Solomon's army. He becomes an adversary to Solomon. And one day there's a prophet named Ahijah. He sees Jeroboam, he goes to Jeroboam and he grabs his garment Tears it in 10 pieces and he says to Jeroboam, God is going to give you 10 tribes and he's going to allow you to rule over 10 of the tribes. One of those tribes will go back to Solomon so that we can create and maintain a Davidic seed and lineage. But you're going to have in the process of time 11 or 10 of those tribes. News gets back to Solomon. Solomon wants to destroy or hurt Jeroboam. He flees into Egypt. Solomon dies. When Solomon dies, his son ascends the throne. His name, separate from Jeroboam, his name is Re with an R, Rehoboam. He comes to the throne, and he's going to ascend the throne. All of Israel gathers around him. And they say to him, during your father's reign, he was very oppressive. We were prosperous, but he was oppressive. He taxed us, we were oppressed. What we would like, when you come to the throne, we want you to lessen the oppression. On his right side are the older men providing him counsel. These are the men of his father's day. On his left side, they're the younger men. And so he turns to the older men and they say, listen to the people. They're right. He turns to the younger men. The younger men say, you know what? (laughs) Don't listen to the people. They don't know what they're talking about. He takes the counsel. Which one do you think? Takes the counsel of the young men. He comes back before the people and he says, I hear you, but here's what I'm going to do. If you think my father was oppressive, I'm going to be even more oppressive. He beat you with whips. I'm going to beat you with scorpions. If you thought his thigh was thick, wait till you see my little finger. The people say something. I want you to get this. This is very significant. When the people hear this, they say, listen, away with the house of David. Remember that away with the son of Jesse. We want nothing to do with the house of David. Do you follow what they're saying? We want nothing to do with this lineage that God is going to be working through. They create, because Jeroboam comes back at that time, they create a northern alliance that will be called in the Bible, Israel. When the prophets generally refer to Israel or Jacob, they're not talking about all 12 tribes. They're talking about the Northern Alliance. They create a Northern Kingdom and their capital will be Samaria. Their first king will be Jeroboam. In the Southern part, that's called Judah. Watch the difference now. There's Israel in the North, Judah in the South. The capital of Judah will be Jerusalem. Rehoboam will be the first king of Judah. Very important. The word Jew comes from those who are from what area? Judah. In the north, Rehoboam decides, or Jeroboam decides rather, that if I'm going to keep control of these people, I know the practices. Three times a year, these people have to go where? They have to go down to Jerusalem. Pentecost, Passover, Tabernacles, but if they go to Jerusalem, I might lose them to Rehoboam. This is important. So what he does is he builds golden calves. Sound familiar? And he places the golden calves, one in Dan, the other in Bethel. And he says to them, the northern tribes, these are your gods, begin to worship them. He also, because the Levites, guess where the Levites are centered? They're in Jerusalem where the temple is, he raises up from the people a different priesthood. These are non-Levitical priests, and he creates these pagan altars, and he says, this is your priesthood, these are your gods, and the people begin to worship. It infuriates God. It is called the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. It's going to run all the way through the kings. The sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. What you will see in the north is, as kings come to the throne after Jeroboam, you will see that every king that comes in the north follows the practices of Jeroboam. And thus every king, I think it's about 17 to 19 of them, every king in the eyes of God is a wicked king. Let me give you an example. After Jeroboam comes, let's say, Basha. After Basha comes Zimri. After Zimri comes Omri. After Omri comes Ahab. Remember him? And the Bible says there was none like Ahab. Who, mar- who did he marry? Jezebel. And you know the story. And the northern tribe, they, they begin to anger God with their practices, their behavior. So God begins to send prophets to the north. This is how you can separate the prophets. Not all prophets are talking to the entire nation. Some prophets are specifically talking to Israel. So for instance, if you read the book of Hosea, he is talking to The northern tribe and he's warning them if you don't change your behavior God's going to judge you if you don't change your behavior God's going to judge you and in the process of time they refused to change and God raised up the Assyrians and Shalmaneser came in and wiped out the northern tribes took them every single one of them away in captivity and replaced them with other groups from different nations that's very important 722 BC the north is wiped out Here's what scholars don't even know. To this day, scholars are still trying to figure out where the 10 tribes are. Can I tell you something? Different groups have risen up over time and say, we're them, I'm gonna help you. So when the black Muslims rose up in the 60s and the 70s, they said, we're the 10 lost tribes, uh, the tribe of Shabazz. I don't know how they got Shabazz in there. But we're the 10 lost tribes that are just wondering. Today, black Hebrew Israelites believe what? We're the 10 lost tribes. Remember I said this. I want you to think about this. When they said, away with the house of David, we want nothing to do with the son of Jesse that has some implications on their fate. You will not see again in the Bible, the reconstitution of the 10 tribes. That's very significant. You will not hear about them any longer. What you will hear now are a group of people when you get to the Gospels that are called Samaritans. And you will see this idea of the Jews from the north having no south, having no dealings with the Samaritans. In the south, what you will have, Rehoboam will be on the throne, Jerusalem will be the capital, the priests are doing their thing, but you will have this inconsistency. At some point, A good king will be on the throne. Another point, a wicked king, for example. Hezekiah will be a great king. Manasseh will be a terrible king. And so you will see this back and forth. And once again, the prophets begin to warn the south. Prophets like Jeremiah would say, you remember what your sister did in the north? Pay attention and don't follow suit because God is going to judge you as well. And you have this up and down. Josiah, great king. Jehoiakim, terrible king, we were having a conversation with some people the other day and someone said, you know, Hezekiah asked God to lengthen his life when he was going to die. That's a good thing. I say that's a bad thing. I'll tell you why that's a bad thing. Because God told him, set your house in order. That's not a bad thing because you're going to die. You you can't be that much afraid of death that you say, God, I don't want to die. He cries, he cries. And Isaiah, who's a prophet to the south, comes and says, God is going to give you 14 more years. God gives him 14 more years. And during that time, he produces a son. What do you think his son's name is? Manasseh. And Manasseh is the wickedest king in the south. Manasseh is so wicked, I want you to hear this, that God said though I would forgive I can't forget what Manasseh did and because of what he did I won't forgive. That's a powerful statement. It doesn't matter what you repent of because of what this boy did in causing children to go through the fire said "I, I cannot. The blood he shed I cannot forgive. And so because they didn't listen, they didn't listen to Isaiah in the south. They didn't listen to Jeremiah, who was crying all day and telling them that trouble is coming. They didn't listen. Nebuchadnezzar came in the process of time and wiped out the south, took all of Judah and brought them to Babylon. This is the first kingdom. The head of gold is Babylon. You can read about this in the book of Second Kings, beginning at chapter 24, 25. I'll do a quick summary of it. Josiah comes to the throne. He's a phenomenal king. He finds the Torah. He restores the law of God. He rededicates the temple. He's doing wonderful. As he gets a little older, he goes to fight Pharaoh at a place called Megiddo. And his counselors told him, don't go to fight Pharaoh. And he went to fight Pharaoh Necho, he's called and Pharaoh killed him at Carchemish and they brought him back to Jerusalem. They buried him and his son Jehoahaz went on the throne and Jehoahaz, which is what I don't understand. Your father did so much good to restore the law and order Jehoahaz does what he does that which is evil in the sight of God. Pharaoh comes because Egypt is still somewhat a world power. Pharaoh comes and Pharaoh takes Jehoahaz, listen to this, and he brings him to Egypt and he replaces him with a gentleman named Eliakim, which is Josiah's other son. And Pharaoh changes his name from Eliakim to Jehoiakim. Whenever you see a pagan ruler change the name of a particular ruler, what he's saying is, that's my puppet. He's actually in place for me. And so Jehoiakim is on the throne in Israel, or sorry, in Judah. He's a terrible king. He does wrong. And he ultimately dies. And what he doesn't realize is that on the horizon, the Babylonians are slowly becoming a global power. Pharaoh doesn't realize this until Nebuchadnezzar comes and he fights the Egyptians and he destroys them. On the throne now is another king. His name is Jehoachin with a C. He is on the throne. Nebuchadnezzar comes against Jerusalem and he takes Jehoachin and he wraps him in chains and brings him to Babylon. And he also takes much of the treasure out of the temple. He takes royal children and he brings them to Babylon. Do you remember that? He takes children like Daniel and Azariah and Mishael, and Hananiah. And he brings them all to Babylon. And he places on the throne another gentleman named Mattaniah, changes his name to Zedekiah. And he becomes Nebuchadnezzar's puppet. He rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. And this time, Nebuchadnezzar comes against Jerusalem, and he's infuriated. He besieges the city roundabout. No one can go out, no one can come in and he decides that this time he's not just going to take things out of the city he's going to destroy the city Nebuchadnezzar in the scripture he's a beast he comes and he decides he's going to just dismantle the city piece by piece Zedekiah decides that he's going to run through the gate and get away with his men of war and as he's running Nebuchadnezzar grabs him brings him to a place called Riblah takes his sons kills his sons before his eyes Plucks out his eyes, wraps him in chains, drags him to Babylon. But he doesn't stop there. He marches into the city. He, well, not him. He sends in his general, Nebuchadnezzar, and he robs the temple. He takes the golden altar. He takes the brazen label. He takes the candlestick. He takes the show, everything. He takes everything out of the temple and he burns the temple to the ground inside the temple the Levites were in the temple according to Jewish legend the Levites ran up to the top to the very roof of the temple and they took the keys of the temple while the temple was on fire and they threw the keys in the air and they said God hold these keys until such time as we can open the gates of this house again that's in Jewish mind you know I I, I want I want to tell you the story so you can see that Jesus knows his history So when he talks to his disciples and he tells them upon this rock I'm going to build and I'm going to give you the... They understood what he was talking about. He burned the the gates of the city. He burned the walls. He burned the city to the very ground and left just some poor people in the land. And Jerusalem was just a heap. When Jeremiah saw that he wrote the book of Lamentations before he ran to Egypt... And he looked at the city and he said how is this how is this possible the prophets warned that it was coming it just takes time for God to execute his judgment Babylon becomes the first empire that will shape the world of Jesus let me show you why because for 70 years if you look at Jeremiah 25 verse 11 70 years they're going to spend in Babylonian captivity Judah is going to spend that time there Watch this. Let's go through this now. Watch. 722, I told you this. In the north, Assyria destroys the northern kingdom. And the ten tribes, they're disbanded. You can read about this in Isaiah chapter 10. There you go, the Assyrian, God says, they're the rod of my anger. They're the staff in my hand to execute my indignation. I'll send them against a hypocritical nation, against the people of my wrath. And that's what they're going to do. They're gonna take prey, tread down the mire of the streets. It's gonna be something in there. And there in 2 Kings seventeen twenty-two, the children of Israel, the north, walked in the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They departed not from them. Just gonna go through this quickly until the Lord removed Israel, the north, out of his sight. As the prophets had warned, Israel was carried away out of their land to Assyria unto this day. We don't even know what's become of them. King of Assyria brought men from Babylon, and then he filled the city and Samaria and things of the like. In 586 BC, if you're good with your dates, that's when Nebuchadnezzar invades the southern kingdom. He comes up. 2nd Kings 25 verse 1 came to pass in the ninth year Nebuchadnezzar came against Jerusalem, pitched against it, built forts around about it, and he just destroyed it. He destroyed the temple, which was Solomon's temple. It's the first temple. He burns it to the ground. You're going to see this in 2nd Kings. Don't mind me going. I told you the story, right? There you go. He sends in his captain Nebuzaradin. And here's what he does, he goes into the city, he burns the house of the Lord, the king's house, all the houses of Jerusalem, every great man's house, he burnt it with fire. He raised the city to the ground. As a result, 70 years, they're going to be in captivity. When the writer of Kings, I hope this is not boring, when the writer of Kings talks about it, he says, it was God's judgment for their consistency in doing the things that they were doing. When the writer of Chronicles writes, he says, because they did not allow the land to experience Sabbath. And so God was both judging them and their treatment of the land. He said, for 70 years, I'm going to let the land rest while you stay in exile. And this is also my, can I say, chastening for your, your behavior. Jeremiah talks about this in Jeremiah 25 verse 11. This whole land shall be desolate and they're going to serve the king of Babylon for. 70 years try to stay awake everyone it's going to get really good here's what happens when they go to babylon remember they go down there speaking hebrew but over time they pick up the language of the eastern nations they begin to speak aramaic and they begin to lose the knowledge of how to speak hebrew at least the common people do And only those people that are writing scripture, don't get tired now. I'm telling you it's going to help you. Watch. Only those people that are studying scripture, interpreting and copying scripture, maintain the language of Hebrew. Very important. You're going to see when Jesus comes, he is actually bilingual, if not trilingual. But the language that he speaks among the common people is Aramaic. This is what they're speaking. This is kind of like, if you would, language that you would speak at home, things like that. It's a common language. They learn this, their language has changed. The second thing that's important is something that never existed before begins to surface, the synagogue. The synagogue did not exist before the days of Babylon because everyone went where? They went to the, to the temple. Now they're in Babylon. There's no temple. There's no place for them to congregate. So they then begin to develop these smaller, so what we would call today small groups. They start to develop these small gatherings in different parts of where they're in exile. And these are called synagogues. Maybe six or seven men, elders in a community can begin to develop and raise up a synagogue. The synagogue exists for a few reasons. Number one, it becomes the place where they can pray. So it becomes what the writers call the tefillah, the bayit ha-tefillah, the house of prayer. It also becomes the place where they can assemble. It's the Knesset. So they can assemble in the synagogue. And here's the last one. It's the place where they can study and learn. It's the house of learning. Three things happen in the synagogue. It's where they gather. It's where they pray. It's where they learn scripture. Three things happen in the synagogue. They gather. They pray. They learn scripture. As time goes on, the synagogue will become the place where their children are schooled until they're 12 years old. Every Jewish boy is trained in the synagogue until they're 12 years old. This is one of the reasons why I said to you that do not think that the disciples were uneducated. After 12 years old, they enter what's called a bar mitzvah. They still do that today. They become sons of the commandment. Girls get bat mitzvah, daughters of the commandment. You can then decide, are you going to be a fisherman, a craftsman, a farmer? Or are you going to continue to sit at the feet of a rabbi? If you sit at the feet of a rabbi, in their mind, you're a learned man. That's why Paul continues to insist that he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Those who sit at the feet of rabbis consider themselves to be intellectuals of the day. If you didn't, you were considered to be an unlearned man. Doesn't mean that you're uneducated. The synagogue begins to rise. It's going to play a critical part in the ministry of Jesus. That's where he's going to do some ministry. That's where he's going to be resisted. That's where he's going to find opposition. This is what the people know, the synagogue. The second thing that's going to happen is there's the rise of river gatherings. This is something I don't know if anyone's taught you. Because they're in Babylon, if there's no synagogue, what they would do is they would go out by the river. And there just a few of them would sit and they would pray by the river. They would worship by the river. Am I right? Can I help you? By the rivers of... There we sat down, there we wept. When we remembered Zion, for those that carried us away captive, they required of us a song. They wanted us mirth. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a Psalm 137 comes from that. So they begin to gather by the river. This is so powerful that it continues all the way into the book of Acts. They're still doing that in different parts of the the diaspora when Paul begins to spread the gospel and he goes to Philippi guess what he does on the Sabbath day he goes out where the women gather by the river and there he meets a lady her name is Lydia she's a seller of purple it started here in the days of Babylon gathering by the river this is what Paul says certain days they were in the city and on the Sabbath day watch what he's going to do they went by the riverside where prayer was often made and there he saw the women there and they were praying. Maybe the reason is that the women were not as welcomed in the synagogue as the men were. And so perhaps this is one of the reasons why the women gathered by the riverside. This is something that I want you to see. The third thing that happened when they're in Babylon is the rise of something called the oral traditions. This is a powerful truth. Here's what happened. Because they knew that the reason why they were in exile, it was because, Gary, they didn't follow the law of God. And so when they got down there, they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to pay attention, Lloyd, to the law of God. But we don't have a temple, we can't sacrifice, we can't shed blood. So we're going to pay attention. So they pulled on scriptures like 1st Samuel 15. Behold, to obey is better than, to hearken better. And so they began to talk about how do we apply the Torah in this strange land? What they developed was, these are called the scribes now, interpretations of the, of the scriptures. In other words, here's what it means. To keep the Sabbath. For instance, an example is, um, you, you shouldn't do any work on the Sabbath. Well, What does that mean? What does that mean in Babylon? Well, the scribes came along and they had 39 definitions of what work was. Here's what you could, you could, you could not do. Those interpretations are called the oral traditions. Here's why that's important. As they began to teach these oral traditions, which were interpretations of the law, those practices elevated themselves to the same level as the written law itself and began to be even more important than the written law to the degree hear me that if you didn't keep the traditions God was not pleased with you are you with me It became so pronounced. The Pharisees were the ones that really held to these oral traditions. I'll give you an example, then we'll read the text. They're in a strange land. And the the, the Torah says that they should be holy, which means clean, not defiled. And so they want to define what does that mean in Babylon to be clean? And so they came up with traditions of washing themselves. So if you, David, if you went to the marketplace and you're in the marketplace and you're handling food, you could defile yourself. You might be touching meat that's been offered to a a god in one of the temples. And so your hands would be defiled. So when you came home, David, what should you do? You had better wash your hands because a demon could have jumped on your hand. And and then now you, you could be eating food and that thing could get and defile you. So when Jesus was around, they said, how come your disciples don't, according to the traditions of the, the elders, they believe these things to the degree that if you broke these, am I helping anyone? They came up with rules that were on the same level as scripture, if not even higher. I hope you're thinking deeply. Let me repeat that. They came up with rules that were on the same level as scripture, if not even higher, that if you broke these rules, you displease God. I'll show you the scripture here. This is the oral tradition. I'm just setting the backdrop. So when we get to the gospels, he says, watch. They're asking, how come you don't wash according to the tradition? He says, how be it in vain you worship me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. Watch this. For you laying aside the commandments, you hold to the oral traditions. And it's going it's to be more than just spoken. Over time, they're going to put these into books. One of the most famous Jewish book is called the Mishnah, which is just a compilation of all these traditions. Mishnah means to repeat it. And then they're going to have a second book, which interprets the Mishnah called the Gemara. They're going to put it all together in another big book, huge book called the Talmud. And Jewish boys, Hasidic Jewish boys sit there all day. So so when you think these guys don't, they have rules. If you think uh, certain groups within Christianity has rules, Orthodox Judaism, Judaism has rules. A lot of rules that stem from, and all they were trying to do, here's what they were trying to do. They were trying to avoid not breaking the rules that brought us into this situation. See the fine line? They were trying to please God and they took it too far. After the Babylonians, the Persians come, you know the story because in Daniel chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar has died, his son is Belshazzar. And Belshazzar does something that angers God. He wants to have a party. And he, instead of using his china, his cutlery, his cups, he takes the vessels from the house of God that was in the the house of their God. He brings it into the party. They begin to drink wine out of these things. And a hand appears out of nowhere. You know the story, right? And the hand begins to write on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Ufarsin. And then Daniel comes along, he interprets it, and he tells Belshazzar, that the days of Babylonian rule are coming to an end. And guess what? The head of gold is coming to an end. The breasts and the arms are now coming. The Persians are coming. If you want to know who the Persians are, this would be, um, for example, modern day Iran. In fact, the old name for Iran is Persia. So here comes another group from the east. Daniel is going to also talk about this, if you want to write this down, in Daniel chapter number 8. He's going to see a ram with two horns. The two horns represent the Medes, the first group. The second horn, the Persians, they're going to come. People like Darius, Cyrus, Xerxes, these are all Persians. And in that night, according to Daniel, Darius the Mede comes and he wipes out the Babylonians. Israel is still not or Judah is still not in Jerusalem. They're still in captivity, just that their masters have changed. The Persians are now their masters. The Persians are a little bit more easier on them. They allow them to continue their synagogues, their worship, all that kind of stuff. And in the process of time, interestingly enough, Cyrus gets a vision from God. And that vision is, I want to build a house for the God of Israel or Jacob. And I want to build it in Jerusalem. Who is left that wants to go up to build a house and the Jews start coming out of exile to build the house. It happens under the Persians. Keep in mind now, they're speaking Aramaic. And here's what happens. In 539, I told you, the Persians invade Babylon and they destroy the Babylonians. Daniel chapter five, there's the scripture. There are the words, simply means Mene, means this. Your kingdom is numbered, it's finished. Tikael means you're weighed in the balance, you're found wanting, God has tested you. He sees that you're lacking. And then lastly, your kingdom is divided. It's given to the Medes and the Persians. And that night Darius comes in. Cyrus releases them to return to Jerusalem. In the book of Ezra, you see this. Cyrus says, who wants to go? This is a very important thing. It is a pagan king that gets a dream from God for them to return. So when you read the history of Israel, what you're really seeing is the orchestration of God through anyone that he chooses. Please hear me. Do not tell God who he can use. (laughs) And don't be surprised at whom he chooses to use. Because in some of his decisions, what he's displaying to us is his sovereignty over that which he's created, both good and bad. That's why you should never argue with him if he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He's sovereign. So here's a Persian King Cyrus who no covenant, no circumcision, no Sabbath, no knowledge, no whatever it is. And God tells him, let them go home to build a temple. In the book of Ezra, Ezra talks about this. In the first year of Cyrus, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah to be fulfilled. The Lord stirred the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia. He makes a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. Can be done in Canada as well. The Lord God of heaven given me all these kingdoms. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who wants to go up and do that? That should challenge us, by the way, because Cyrus seems to believe that his conquest is God-ordained. And so they, they, they go ahead and they do that. Here's how it happens. This is the distinction between the exile and the exodus. In the book of Exodus, when they came out of Egypt, they all came out at one time. In the exile from Babylon, it doesn't happen like that. They come out in waves and some of them choose, listen to this, not to leave. Do you follow? Because after a while, you're going to see some incredible truths. After a while, you're in Persia. You've been under the Babylonians. You're in these great cosmopolitan cities. You're in Shushan. You start seeing people do things and you start. And all of a sudden, you say, whoa, whoa, whoa. it's kind of like the whole idea. If you're from the village and you go to the city and somebody says, come back to the village, you said. I want to go back to the village, I'm in the city now. Um, I don't want to go back to Santa Cruz, I'm, I'm in Kingston now. I, don't want, I want to go back to the village, I'm in, I'm in Lagos now. I'm in Accra now, why do I want to go back to the village? Some of them chose to stay in exile. That's, that's powerful. They chose to stay. The first wave of, 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 of exiles that come home, they come home under a person named Zerubbabel. And he takes them out and his job, he's going to take them out because his first job is to reconstruct the temple. When you go to Matthew's Gotham, I'm I'm giving you a lot of information. You're going to find out that Zerubbabel is actually a Davidic king. He's one of David's descendants. But because they've been in captivity, there is no kingship. So you have a king having no throne, but he still has the authority. He takes them out and he brings them a small group. They go back to Jerusalem and their first job is to reconstruct the temple. In the book of Ezra, the captivity that were carried away, they came again to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city. They came with Zerubbabel and these are the people that came, the number of the men of the people of Israel. And what they do is they reconstruct the first temple that Solomon built. So they begin to lay the foundation. So books that you need to read now are books like Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. Because as Zerubbabel is building the temple, there's opposition. And these prophets, I'm just helping you to localize them. They begin to encourage Zerubbabel and they begin to tell him things like this. Listen, so you'll know how it's used properly. Zerubbabel is getting tired. So Zechariah is going to say, son, it's not by might nor by power, but it is by my spirit, saith the Lord. Come on, who are you, O great mountain, that you would stand before Zerubbabel? And they begin to encourage him. Haggai tells them, go up to the mountain, get wood, don't stay in your seal houses, and build the house of God, and the glory of the latter house shall be greater than that of the former, and in this place I'm going to give them peace. So you see the prophets are working in concert with them to reconstruct the temple. They ultimately laid the foundation. It isn't as glorious as Solomon's temple, but the elders are there crying because they remember what was. The young people are there saying, this looks good to me. I didn't see Solomon's temple. And so there's this loud shout. And in the shout, some people listen to this. This is very powerful. In the shout, some people are crying for what was. In the shout, some people are celebrating for what will be. And you start seeing the distinction between the generations. Some people are still hoping for Solomon's glory. Some people are looking for the glory of the the latter house. So constructs the temple. But guess what they're missing? He constructs the temple. There's the story there. But what they don't have, they don't have walls. And so what's going to happen now is... uh, Too many verses, sorry about that. A second wave of people are going to come under a gentleman named Nehemiah. Nehemiah is going to be there in Persia. He's a cupbearer in the palace. He hears that things are happening in Jerusalem. Jews are going home. The temple is being constructed. But the walls are still broken down. There's no walls around the city. So Nehemiah puts a sad face on and the king says, what's wrong? He says, I I hear the the walls are torn, I wanna go. The king authorizes him with a letter to go and Nehemiah goes up and he builds the walls and there's opposition to him building the walls. And you know the story, Nehemiah begins to say, the joy of the Lord is my strength. He builds the walls and he establishes that safety, that perimeter around the city and a second wave of people go. During the time of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, Ezra also goes out of captivity. And Ezra is a critical person because he is a scribe. And he's one of the people in Babylon that was responsible for interpreting and copying the law. And what Ezra is going to do, very powerful, he's going to begin to read them the law again. They're going to love it because they've never heard it in so long. But he's also going to tell them, this is powerful. He says, some of you men have married foreign women. You got to put those women away. And they do it. And he begins to realign and organize the priests. And he sets everything in order because the world is being shaped for something to come. Ezra does that. Nehemiah does that. And he ultimately finishes the wall. Came to Jerusalem. He was there three days. And ultimately he builds the walls in Nehemiah 4 verse 6. So now we're out of captivity. We're in Judea, the walls, the temple, everything is there. But here's something I want to show you. Not all Jews leave Persia. Not all Jews decide to go home. Some of them decide that they're going to stay. It's called the diaspora. They're going to stay there. They like it in Persia, in Shushan. They like it. And so what's going to happen now is this is what gives rise to the book of Esther. Because these Jews who did not go home, they stay there and all of a sudden they're being persecuted in Persia because of their faith, God, etc. You will then understand why in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost, Jews from all over the empire come back to Jerusalem. They choose not to go back. And that's an interesting thing. You, you get a chance to go home. Esther decides she's going to stay. Mordecai, and they're there. You know, all the provinces of the king of Persia at the time. I'll do one more that I'm going to stop because I think this is important. This, these are the prophets I told you that are prophesying during this time. Haggai is talking, Zechariah, Malachi. These are called post-exilic prophets. They're prophesying to the people coming back home. There's one more group that I wanna to talk to you about because I think they're important. Their legacy is still around to this very day. The Persians were on, on the scene for a while, but what they didn't realize was that on the Western front, the Greeks were becoming an empire. The Greeks were not an empire because what the Greeks were, they were just a co- combination or a compilation of little city-states that were disunified. So you had groups like Athens, Sparta, Troy, Macedon, they weren't together. They were disunified. But around 350 BC, a king comes to the throne in one of the city-states called Macedon. His name is Philip II. If you do your history, you'll see. He's a student of a Greek philosopher and historian named Isocrates. And Isocrates says to Philip, if you can unify the Greeks, if you can bring all these groups together... Athens, Troy, Sparta, Macedon, and bring them under one umbrella. It's called the Hellas, the Greeks, one umbrella. And if you can subject the Persians through this unified group, listen to what he tells them, there's nothing left for you but to be a God. And he believes it. He said, I believe it. And he begins through a campaign of war and diplomacy to bring these groups together. He brings Sparta. And Athens and all these groups together under one umbrella called the Hellas, H-E-L-L-A-S. That's the Greek word for Greek. And he then begins this campaign now of building this Greek empire. Two years into doing that, he's assassinated. He is not the real person that's important. His son, who is just 21 years old, comes to the throne. His name is Alexander. Alexander is 21 years old and Philip ensured that Alexander was schooled at the feet of Aristotle. And Aristotle taught Alexander, one of the Greek philosophers, he said, humanity and culture has reached its climax in Greek culture. There's no greater culture than the Greeks. Listen to this. Our theater is the greatest. Our arts is the greatest. Our athletics, is the. our language is the greatest. If you want to talk about the greatest culture, the Greeks are the greatest. Do you know what, Alexander? Did? He believed it. He believed. He said, I believe that. We're, we're in fact the greatest. This is a great example of what America is like today. He said, the Greeks are it. If you want to talk about culture at the highest, the Greeks are it. We got it. We've got the best theater. We've got the best athletes. We've got the gym. We've got the bathhouses. We've got the theater. We've got the gods. We've got everything. He believed it. And he was also a student of Homer, which is a great uh, Greek poet. And Homer wrote stories called the Iliad. And he wrote about people like, remember, Achilles, this great warrior that would fight for the Greeks. And Alexander believed it. And he said, I'm going to do this. He said to himself, watch this. He said, I'm going to build this great world city called a cosmopolis, a cosmopolitan. I'm going to build this world city and it's going to be under the Greek umbrella. Everyone's going to speak Greek. Everyone's going to do the Greek thing. They're going to go to the Greek games and go to the Greek theater. In other words, he believed in this concept, manifest destiny. And so he started to fight Of course, he's coming from the West. If you read Daniel chapter 8, you will see him in Daniel chapter 8. He's the goat that comes from the West, that comes against the ram and hits the ram, stamps him to the ground and the goat becomes prominent. And Alexander, in 11 years, he conquered, he conquered Palestine, North Africa. There's a city right now in Egypt called Alexandria. He conquered what we would call modern day Pakistan, Afghanistan, went all the way far as you can imagine to India. And as he was conquering, his men said, we're not going no further. He Went back to Babylon and history teaches us that he died of a fever. And when he died, he had no successor. And the four generals, watch the accuracy of Daniel's prophecy. His four generals decided that they were going to split the kingdom amongst themselves because when the goat fell, out of the goat came four horns. Daniel is very prophetic and precise. His four generals begin to Fight for control of the empire and becomes four split groups in the empire until it becomes three until it becomes two And i'll explain who the two are in just a moment the greeks are the belly and the thighs of brass Here's what they do and i'll stop here. I'm going to show you how how powerful this is the coming of alexander the great 336 bc daniel talks about him Watch what daniel says. I was considering and a goat came from the west If the goat is coming from the west, he's coming from greece and he's coming to the east. He doesn't touch the earth. In other words, he's moving very quickly. In other words, in quick time, this goat is going to take over. The goat has a notable horn between his eyes. That's Alexander the Great. And he came to the ram. That's the Medo-Persian empire. And the ram had two horns, which was standing before the river. And he ran upon him with fury, the fury of his power. And what does he do to the ram? He came close. He moved with anger. He smote the ram broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to stand before him. He cast him to the ground, stamped upon him. There was none that could deliver the ram out of his hands. Here's what he does that's going to impact the world of Jesus. He's going to Hellenize the ancient world. He's going to make everyone Greek, at least in their thinking. This is going to impact Jews. And I'm going to show you how it creates the vision when Jesus is born. All of a sudden now, Jews begin to learn how to speak Greek. They're already speaking Aramaic, but if you're going to do commerce, if you're going to deal with the military, you've got to learn how to speak Greek. And Greek becomes the lingua franca, the common language. Everyone is speaking Greek. That's why today when theologians stand up there and pastors tell you uh, the Greek word for this, there's a reason why the New Testament is written in Greek. It becomes the language of the people. But things are going to happen to the Jews Because the Jews are going to, at least some of them, they're going to start embracing this. It's going to create conflict because some Jews are going to hold to Judaism, others are going to embrace Hellenism. I'm going to show you something interesting. So now, when the Greeks open up their theater in Palestine, and it's the Sabbath day, some Jews are having some issues. Because now, do I go to temple, (laughs) or do I go to the theater? Sound familiar? there's this conflict now, Uh, there's athletics going on because there are the games going on at the gymnas, but it's the Sabbath, do I go to the the games or do I go to the synagogue? And you're going to see this crisis because here's what you need to understand about the Greeks, when the Greeks did their games, they did their games in the nude. And so if I wanted to participate as a Jew in the games and I didn't want them to know that I was a Jew, I would then forego circumcision. And then you're gonna start seeing different groups begin to rise up and this will begin to help us to understand the distinction between the Pharisees, those who go to synagogue and hate the gym, and the Sadducees, those who are okay with the gym and feel like there's nothing wrong with it, you're going to start seeing the conflict that will exist as a result of Hellenism. That's why in the book of Acts, you're going to find out that in the church, there are Hebraic widows, and there are Hellenistic widows. And the Hellenistic widows are upset because the Hebraic widows are getting more food than them. It starts here. You may look at me strange, but I'm trying to show you something tonight. Theology lives in a context. When you understand the context, you can understand its application. The reason why I'm teaching you this, and it's laborious, is that sometimes we're praying to God, but we don't understand our world and the dynamics of our world. So he Hellenizes the whole world. Everyone is speaking Greek. They're learning it. It's called, watch this, it's called Koine Greek. Isn't that interesting? Because that word is the word that you get, Koine, commonality. Everyone's speaking the same thing. Does it sound like what the British did and called it colonialism? It does, doesn't it? Everyone's speaking English. Even if you got your mother tongue, everyone's speaking English, starting to believe that society had reached its apex in England, etc. And the Americans do the same thing today. Here's one more thing. With the death of Alexander, the four horns come up the generals. We won't do this tonight. I'll probably save it for next week because some things are going to happen that's going to really anger the Jews and wars are going to break out among the Jews and within the Jews. And what we will do is we're going to look at this next week. I'll read Daniel chapter 8 verses 8 and 9. When the goat became great, that's Alexander at his greatest, I think he died at 33 years old. When he was strong, the horn was broken. And four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. And there's this person that we're going to talk about next week. And one came out that was exceeding great toward the south, the east, and toward the pleasant land. I'm going to talk to you about this next week. I'm going to talk to you about the Maccabean revolt and what happens in Israel in 167 and the wars that they fight. And I'm going to show you how the high priests and that lineage comes about so you'll understand When we get to the Gospels, you'll understand who Annas is, who Caiaphas is. You'll understand what the Sanhedrin are all about and where it came from. And you'll see a lot of similarities between what they did and what we can do today. Let me pause. It's 8.15. I'm going to stop here. We'll pick up next week. We'll finish the Greek portion. Then I will show you what happens when Rome comes. What Rome does, you'll then understand who Herod is, who Herod Antipas is who Pilate is and what their role is and how they play a role in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Then we can talk about Jesus being fair to him in the world in which he is raised. Take him out of that world and we can apply him today into our world. I'll stop here. Are there any questions at all that you would like to ask of what we've discussed thus far? Anything that I, maybe I wasn't clear on, you didn't get it. When you said, "Ah, oh, Pastor, that was pretty boring, but... We'll we'll put it all together in, in, in time to come. Any any questions at all for the Q&A? Okay. I think, Sean, we're going to go to the right here. To my right. And if there's any questions online, Ephraim, you can let us know.
1: Uh, so thank you for the teaching.
0: I'm trying, yes.
1: And um, how do the Jews relate to Christianity today, the modern day Jews?
0: well let's not let's not do this let's not even go to the modern day Jew let's go back to the Jew of the first century here's something that we will get there when we get to the Gospels remember Christianity started in the cradle of Judaism you knew that right Christianity was first and foremost Judaism can I say 2.0 if, if you understood that it, it, we who would consider ourselves non-Jews we weren't even a part of the early church all the members of the early church, the body, they were Jews. And they didn't even understand at that point any sort of messaging to the world outside of their particular sphere, which I find to be incredible. Think about this. They walked with Jesus. He taught a global message and they saw it in a local context. Do you see what I'm trying to say? He told them that he came for the whole world. He came to be the light of the world and they still saw it within a local context. So on the day of Pentecost, there was no non-Jews there. Everyone that came, either they were in the upper room, they were Jewish. Everyone that came were Jews from the diaspora. When the church moved, it moved to Samaria. And again, even there, there were half Jews. They still struggle with that. It went down to this other place. It was all Jews. Until you get to Acts chapter number 10, where they, they, they dare to go to Cornelius's house. And watch this. Peter, who has keys to establish this ministry, the Holy Spirit has to convince him to go to Cornelius' house. Am I right? The Holy Spirit has to tell him through a Jewish analogy, all these things that you wouldn't eat, (laughs) these four-footed beasts. Don't call them unclean, what I've sanctified is clean. And he goes down to Cornelius' house reluctantly and unawares to the church in Jerusalem. They didn't know he went. And watch what the Holy Spirit has to do. This is what I think is so critical. The Holy Spirit before was falling on people who accepted Jesus, right? They were accepting the Holy Spirit came. In Cornelius' house, the Holy Spirit has to come not for their benefit, but for whose? For Peter's benefit, because Peter couldn't go back and say, I I think they've accepted Jesus and uh, let's go and pray that they get." Peter had to go back and say, the same spirit that fell on us fell on them. And I can't say nothing about that because I heard them speak and those who came with me, they heard them speak, God must be doing something outside of our borders. And it's at that point that here comes this person that God was shaping and forming, this gentleman who sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Paul was being primed to take the gospel to the world. But you know what Paul has to do? He has to get permission from Jerusalem to go to the Gentiles. So Christianity at first was, can I say this? It was a higher expression of Judaism and God ultimately took it out of that small, uh, if you will, container, and just launched out into the wider world. Today, for some reason, we're not able to convince, whether it be Orthodox Jews or non that hey, this that we're in started with you. And we sometimes forget that this that we're in started with them. So it now becomes God's responsibility at some point in history to take some scales off their eyes and connect us with them through engrafting so that those who are out there, and we who are in here, we can be engrafted together and then I think we're going to see the glory of God but I think we're forgetting that the foundation, that's why this that we're teaching is critical because you don't have a gospel, you don't have a church unless you understand its foundation and its foundation is rooted in the children of God from the old, does that make sense? Okay, I don't know if we know yet though, if I may say this, I don't know if we know yet how to present the gospel to the Jewish community. I don't know if we've thought about how do you sit down with them and present the gospel. And this is what makes Paul just so phenomenal. He can present it to both the Jew and the non-Jew. And then I would also say this, if, if there's any other questions, please come. If you do happen to present the gospel to a Jewish person and they reject it, don't take it personally. It just means perhaps at that time there's still some blinders on. And so just know how to move along. Don't, don't, don't think that they've rejected you, so to speak. There's some blinders still on as well. But I think there's something to be said about learning how to communicate with them. Keep this in mind though. there's a small group that I would say small group of Messianic Jews today that have accepted Jesus Christ. We we have relationship with some of them over here in North York. So there's a small subset. But by and large, Christianity has left its Jewish foundations. It's really lodged itself in a, can I say, a Gentile, um, if you will, environment. And the, the Jew is kind of on the outside waiting for Messiah to come. I didn't didn't put this on the screen tonight, but you know, have you ever heard the term the intertestamental period? It just means the period between Malachi and Matthew, that period between the testaments. Keep this in mind. When when we use certain language, that language is based on how we understand the scriptures. You couldn't sit with a Jew and tell them, you know, in the intertestamental period this happened. Because the Jew is going to tell you, what do you mean the intertestamental period? There's only one testament so he doesn't know anything about it a, a new testament he would be do you follow what i'm saying in the same way that tonight i use terms like bc ad just know that not everyone's going to understand that you believe that there's in the year of our lord for some people this is bce a common era and there was c or sorry c a common era that not everyone uses religious language all the time and understands how we understand things So just keep that in mind as well as we're processing some things as we go along. Okay? Any other questions at all? I think there's someone here that said they wanted to just quickly encourage us. I'm going to ask you, if you want to come in, uh, my sister? Not your daughter. There she is. Good.
2: Um, yeah, so super duper quickly, um, I kind of just wanted to share some encouragement in this victorious week, yes. week that we're having. Yes. Um, because something really amazing happened to me today. Um, I think for the first time in my life, I just want to kind of just share, like, how God is, like, kind of moving in our youth, you know, amongst the youth as well. Yes. So, yeah, like, super quickly, um, for the first time in my life, like, I really, I feel like i really experienced, I mean, obviously, you know, we experience the love of God, like, every day, right? hmm And, like, um, but I, like, for the first time ever, like, experienced the love of God to the point where I cried. So, basically, um, I got accepted into Homer College, and I'm starting in May.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Um, so, I think it was around, like, late March, mid-March, like, I had gotten news. I was kind of, I was super stressing about how I was gonna, like, pay my tuition. And, like, I talked about it with my mom. I was like, no, everything's going to be fine. God's going to make a way. But, like, I was, I you know, I've really been, like, battling anxiety. Me and God have really just been working together to battle anxiety. And I just had pending anxieties about it. Yeah. And, you know, like, for the first time, I, I truly understand the meaning of, like, Ephesians 3.20. Like, God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, more than we can ever ask for. Yes. Because, like... At first, like, it was like, okay, I won't, they told me I wouldn't be able to get OSAP, like, I would be able to pay for my tuition, so I was, like, yeah. I'm stressing. And then, like, we had gotten news that, like, um, okay, you know, like, the block yes. that was on, it was lifted, so I can get OSAP. But on top of that, what had happened was I had gotten an email this morning, and, like, they had said that, like, you know how like OSAP loans you money and they give you money right mm-hmm. so on top of me being able to receive OSAP I am only receiving grants I'm not gonna get any loans oh, I like grants. That. <laughs> So yeah so um I really now understand the meaning of Ephesians 3:20 because Man. to think that what I was even stressing about how I was gonna pay my tuition but like I was granted money I don't owe anything I don't I've yes. anything. It was just very So, like I just like ever since it's like, and I you know the thing is like, I've always kind of struggled with this Christian walk because I was just scared of certain things and just how mm-hmm. it was gonna go. Yeah. But you know, last year I was like, you know what, God, no matter how many questions I have and no matter how many times like I feel like you're not for me, I really still want to take this seriously. I want to give us a real chance. And ever since then everything has just been falling in line and I was like looking at myself in the mirror this morning and I was like, Why was I scared to do this? Like I mean there are I know why, but like at the same time it's like why exactly was I scared to be serious about this? (laughs) Like so yeah, I just wanted to like encourage everyone and just like, you know, God is always moving and you know I know there's a lot of like worry about us youth, but don't worry, like God is like God us and like he's like doing something in everyone's life. So yeah, it's like everyone.
0: Amen. Thank you for sharing that. I think some people feel built up. Um, we'll be talking to you after if you can lend us some money. <laughs> but listen, guys, trust me on this. It may seem as if tonight, Sean, can we just get some ambiance? It may seem like, oh, this is just a lot of information. When you open the Gospels and you begin to read, and you, you then see Herod, I guarantee you're going to say, I didn't know that. who that was. I didn't know how that worked. I didn't know that. You'll begin to connect the dots. I just want you to trust me on this. The Gospels will come alive when you understand the world in which it lives. And you will understand why certain things happen, why this happens. You'll even understand why the Jews could not crucify Jesus themselves. I'll show you You'll understand it It will just come alive to you. And on that level, because here's what I think happens at times. We're trying to ask God to give us an understanding of a text a scripture that was not really written to us. It was written to someone else. And if we don't understand that first level, you can't go to the second level, the third level, etc. So this is the work of understanding the word of God. And if if we just commit to God, we won't be lazy. You, you see, remember I told you tonight, and we're going to stop here. Remember I told you that some Jewish boys went on to be farmers, fishermen, that's Peter. Some Jewish boys went on, I'll show you why where tax collectors came from. And then I'm going to show you how you can understand Jesus' disciples. And I will convince you that he was the greatest leader that ever walked the planet. Because if you can take these guys who hated each other, and I'll show you the reasons why, and bring them together to a place where they're on, it's not about them liking each other. They come to a place where they're on one accord. You will walk out here saying, wait a minute, why can't we do that? In the body, I, I don't hate you like they hate. They hated each other for legitimate reasons. And Jesus convinced them, by this shall all men know. That you're my disciples. So you you will begin to see why it's so important. And then you will agree with me that you must study to show yourself approved. You will understand why Paul said that. Because he sat at the feet of a rabbi. Who am I talking about? For him it was Gamaliel. For us it's Jesus. That we should sit at his feet and understand his word. Because I suspect... Please challenge me that sometimes we're misapplying him, misrepresenting him, misinterpreting him to the world. And it's in that misinterpretation application that we end up with all these schismatic groups that believe something different about the same person. He's this for them. He's this. for It's just one Jesus. And he's the same in every generation. Why don't we stand to our feet tonight? Go back to your notes, do a little bit of study, review them, we will pick up next week. I won't move as quickly as you may want me to, I'm going to give you this foundation. Stay with me, don't say I'm not coming next week because it was just history lesson and I need something spiritual. I want to talk to you about the scribes, the Pharisees, I want to talk to you about magic, I want to talk to you about Gnosticism and all of these things. So that when you go out there now and you realize that there's all these groups out there in this world and that Jesus was able to navigate his world with all these groups and win souls for the kingdom, we then shall be able to do the same thing. If you agree, just lift your hands with me. We're on a journey, a journey of study. If you're at home, join us on the journey of studying so that we will rightly divide the word of truth and that there will be no error in our interpretation of who Jesus Christ is. Oh that we whose hands are raised we who are online would know him the power of his resurrection that we here's my prayer tonight would be able to present him to a diverse world a complex world An ever rapidly changing world that we might present Jesus who is the same yesterday, today and forever. Father, give us knowledge of the Son of God for our fellowship is with the Father through His Son. I pray for everyone that's going to sit and labor with me in understanding the Gospels. That we're going to go over the history and the philosophy and the religions and the sects and the foundations, the world that you prepared for Jesus, that we today might prepare a world for Him. Bless us to grasp, to comprehend, to know, to receive, to understand, to apply the revelation of Jesus Christ in our own lives and in the lives of all that we touch. Help us on the learning journey, God. We give ourselves to you as students at the feet of the rabbi. In Jesus' name.